Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of No Country for Academics. I'm Ben, here in mostly sunny Melbourne. And I'm Marcel in very, very sunny Perth. And our guest this week is Dr. Elizabeth Zavitz, who's a research fellow at the Department of Physiology at Monash University. Dr. Zavitz studies the brain using computational and behavioral techniques. She's especially interested in how neuronal populations process visual input, so what we see, how it is that we come to understand our world through, through vision. And we're very, very excited to have you on the show today. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And we are hoping to get into some details of your work specifically. Um, but before we do that, we wanted to get a bit of an idea of how you got into the research itself. Um, so how did you get involved in research and specifically the research that you take part in? Uh, well, I started out doing a bachelor's degree in computer science because like all high school students, I decided what my major should be based on what I thought was fun. And I love to program. I still love to program. And I discovered, though, loving programming doesn't make you love computer science. So I was very fortunate to take a whole bunch of elective credits in psychology. And one of my professors who studied memory gave us this example in class one day that really set me off on my research career. We had been studying how like, you can get somebody to read a list of words and then their ability to recognize words later as having been on that list is really small. Like the list is very, very short and you're like maybe like a hundred words and you're no better than chance at recognizing whether it's a word that was on the list. Mm -hmm. um, but if you give somebody thousands and thousands of pictures, they can very reliably tell you if a picture that they see was or was not in that like giant sequence of images. And when he put this question to us, like why is there this difference here? one of the things that became very clear is that there's just so much more information in a picture than there is in a word. And like, I mean, this is sounding really trite because a picture is worth a thousand words, but there is so much information in a picture and exactly what information is that? And so that really was the moment that linked this interest in like thinking analytically about things and computationally about things and connecting that to biology and the natural world. Um, so I, like, I kept doing my psychology credits and eventually did my PhD studying human visual perception and looking at precisely how the structure of information affects what we see. So a very cool sort of way to think about the structure of visual information is if you think about everything you're going to see in your entire life everything that you're going to experience through your eyes and everything that you could or anybody alive could see through their eyes. That seems like an unfathomably large sort of set of information and visual images that are possible. But then if I set up a computer in front of you and it flickers white noise, every image theoretically possible could appear in that white noise. It's randomly sampled. It will sample everything. But it the chances of you sitting there and like seeing anything that you recognize as real are tiny because even the vast, vast area of like our visual experience is just such a small subset of everything that's possible. And that's crazy. That blows my mind. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That is a very, I mean, the, my next question was that the field seems theoretically intense. And just from that um, small example you gave us, that really does 
show how intense some of this can be. Um, was there a big barrier for entry for you? And how do you recommend students who are interested in this research go about learning and getting a bit more involved? Um, I mean, I think one thing that's been quite easy for me is that I started with skill on a computer in a time when maybe not a lot of people had that. So I learned very quickly that you can get anybody to teach you anything if you say you can code. And so I've gone from like not knowing anything about psychology or neuroscience to slowly like becoming a physiologist uh, just because people have been willing to teach me things because I can code. And I think that's true of a lot of useful skills. So if you're a very good writer, like people will be helpful or in teaching you like about writing things or about using your ability to write and then teach you other things while you do that. Um, or if you're very good at presenting or very good at communicating or like just having this one skill that you know is valuable um, and bringing it to volunteer positions and to like honors projects, for example. So being able to stick to your guns and what you're good at and then learn <laughs> everything else along the way. Yeah. Well, and even just recognizing that everything else is learnable. Like I hated biology in high school. I thought it was awful. Um, and it turns out it is awful in high school because it's the history of biology. And that's not very interesting to me, but doing science itself is fascinating. And just being open to that experience, I think was good. And I mean, honestly, one of the most gratifying experiences I have teaching this field to people is empowering them to code because so many people like they hear something like, oh, information space and possibility that's complicated. And the thing is, it's not, it's just intimidating. So getting people to break down complicated concepts and seeing how accessible they are is really nice. And seeing people who think they can't code because coding is hard and then to just do it. And it's not, I mean, it is hard. It's miserable sometimes, but it's hard for everybody, not just people who've never done it before. Um, so it is empowering if you just stick to something and work on it for a little while. And I found that really cool with like introducing students who are biologists to some of this more theoretical stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to sort of um, backtrack just a second to when you were talking about um, sort of disliking biology in high school and then coming to learn about a lot about it. Um, a lot of, I, you could almost compare that quite very much to maths. A lot of people mm -hmm. in high school who don't like maths, um, either because they they can't, they have a lot of difficulty with it, or even if they do enjoy it, sometimes they don't like it because they don't understand how it can connect the real world. Um, but then they can continue on to learn. And when they're learning things that they are good at, whether that be another STEM subject or even something in the world of arts or um, social sciences, uh, very often maths gets involved either way. So then they can come to realize that maths isn't what they teach in high school and is actually a lot more complicated. Would you say that's sort of along the same idea of Definitely. I think it's completely fair. Like, I mean, I was good enough at maths, but I, in my first year of undergrad, I sat in my algebra professor's office and cried because <laughs> I was scared of failing the class and I didn't understand anything. And I am, I mean, I still am not, I'm not perfect at it, but I use a lot of high level concepts now that I found totally intimidating then, partly because I know what I want to use them for. Like when I was an undergraduate in algebra, I was like solving matrices in order to calculate diffusion in brine tanks. Like I don't care about brine tanks, <laughs> like saltwater diffusion. 
Um, but now I'm using algebra to like explain how information exists in populations of neurons. And that's so exciting to me. So it's hard because when we give, when we educate students at an early level, we just want to give them tools and we need to give them tools to like have something to start with when you get into more exciting things. But learning to use tools without having an exciting problem for them can be really soul crushing. And especially if it's like a tool that doesn't make you feel good to use like math is for a lot of people. Yeah. And the math that they often teach at the like the lower levels, such as high school and first year university, are often just a very because because they are just the tools, very pigeonholed look at what maths can give to you. So sometimes uh, you don't really get that perspective of the greater uses of it. Yeah, and I think it's fair that like not everybody needs to know everything about all of these complicated things, but I think everybody should feel empowered to learn it as they need it. And I, it's so easy to become intimidated. Yeah, um, certainly. Anyway, uh, I wanted to, the next question I wanted to ask you, uh, you mentioned studying computer science in Canada and doing a PhD there. So this is a bit of a simple one. Um, why the move from Canada all the way over here to Monash? Uh, so there's like high sort of high ideals reasons in that I was really excited to do the kind of research that I get to do here. Um, and my PI who I work with here, Nick Price, is excellent and I was really excited to come work with him. Um, and then the other reason is that I lived in Montreal when I was doing my PhD and I hate snow so much. I was, like in my last year of my PhD, it was March, which is springtime in Canada. And I was like, picking my knees up through giant snow drifts. And I decided when I was doing a postdoc fellow, I was going to somewhere where it never snows. Yeah, I mean, it, does, it doesn't <laughs> snow very often down here. I mean, it gets It's cold, never snowed it in Melbourne, snow. never. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's interesting you bring up Nick Price, actually. I, um, I had a class with him uh, last semester, I believe. Um, so he's, he's very interesting and the work that he does is pretty amazing. I was having a read of it myself. Yeah, no, we've worked together now for seven years, and it's been a great collaboration. Yeah, he's, he's spectacular. Um, so getting a bit more sort of into what you do, what's your what's your day-to-day -day like as a researcher now? And I understand that this question might be a little <laughs> bit loaded considering the current climate of work due to... Yeah, <laughs> I get up in my PJs and I go to my office. Uh, I, I don't think I have a job that looks like a lot of scientists in that a lot of the work I do is in MATLAB. So I do collect data um, from brains and from humans and from simulations. And then I spend so much time analyzing it. So on any given day, I probably spend, if like I'm having my dream research day where I'm not doing um, things like filling out paperwork, <laughs> on my dream research day, I'm in MATLAB, um, which is the tool that I use to do research and I'm thinking about what analyses I need to apply to my data to answer the questions I want to answer. Um, if I'm spending time in the lab, I might be putting together some new tools that we might be using. Um, I might be testing things. Like we do a lot of programming for running our experiments as well. So part of studying information in the brain and visual information is controlling the visual information that goes in. So I do a lot of like writing um, scripts to display very tailored images because when you put, give somebody very tailored information and you get them to make a decision about that information, 
you know exactly what they can use to make that decision, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, that, uh, that, that, that reminds me very much of, of what I was doing for, for a few weeks as well. It's definitely, certainly a lot of fun. Um, and and I, I was lucky enough that I didn't, um, I, I basically had this dream research day every day because I, I didn't have to do any paperwork. Um, but, <laughs> uh, so, so, what, so let's get into kind of the focus of this analysis. Um, you, you've talked about why visual processing is, is so kind of exciting and, and, and so special because it seems like such a difficult problem to solve. And I guess the reason that I've always been interested in it is because it seems so magical that there's all these inputs that you know may, may have some underlying structure, but that our brain so easily seems to go from a, a multitude of wavelengths to, to a very structured representation. Do we have a general picture of how this is done? Do we have a step-by-step, more or less, of, of what the brain does to construct the, these pictures? I mean, it depends on the level that you're asking that. We do have an idea. Um, and I would first push back a little bit on the idea that it's easy for the brain. It feels easy to us, but right. we should also think about the fact that 30% of our brains are devoted in some capacity to visual processing. We are wow. highly visual animals um, and our brains work hard to make it seem easy to <laughs> us. We are experts at visual processing and um, that's not, it's not something the brain does by accident. It's hugely refined process in the primate brain, um, which is what partly amazing in and of itself. Um, so yes, we do know how some of it happens. Um, one of the most sort of secure tenets in our theories of how this happens is that it's hierarchical. So if you look at the very early ages of, or early parts of visual processing, um, you'll see selectivity. And what I mean by selectivity is that like individual neurons tend to respond in a selective way. So if you show them a line that is pointed vertical, they might respond by releasing action potentials. But if you show them a line that's off vertical or horizontal, they'll release fewer action potentials. And so we call that selective in that they respond to some things and not other things. Um, and the selectivity that we see in early visual cortex tends to be very simple for different kinds of edge characteristics, like their size and their orientation and their position in space. But when you move up through the visual hierarchy, we tend to see things like selectivity for like complex motion patterns, like you would see when you're like bobbing and weaving through a crowd, like how your visual field changes depending on your own self motion or like areas specialized for faces or particular kinds of objects. And this sort of progressive building on of selectivity is one of the very strong motifs of how the brain creates visual perception. But we don't really know how neurons themselves go from representing one thing to representing another. And that's one of the areas we're actively working on. Wow, yeah. So, so we'll get we'll get into that part um, in in one second. But I, I want to make sure that I have this understanding. So, is the idea that we have neurons responding to very simple um, kind of inputs, like lines facing up or, or 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 horizontally, and then the outputs of those neurons go into neurons that do something a bit more complicated, and then a bit more complicated, and so on, until we get a, a representation. Yes, I think that's that's ninety percent of it. I think the, one of the important parts is that. These neurons that represent simple things in going to another neuron, there's some way that they weight their inputs between each other that creates 
a more complex representation. So it's not just like, oh, this is a simple neuron and this is a complex neuron and simple neurons talk to complex neurons. Simple neurons create complex neurons. So yeah. when you're saying um, based on their weight, you mean like the importance of the information that they're conveying? Yeah, yeah. Well, so the way I would say it sort of at two levels, first scientifically, when I say their weight, the way you might think of that in the brain is how neurons have synapses to one another. And synapses have a strength and that's where the neuron communicates to one another. So some, one neuron with a very strong synapse or a very high weight might have a huge amount of influence on another neuron, but then a neuron with a small weight might have a very small impact on that neuron and whether or not it itself releases an action potential. And then at a higher sort of abstract level, it's just, yeah, how much one neuron listens to other neurons in its, in its uh, sphere of influence. Um, this, this might be sort of a little bit of a tangent, but considering the sort of complexity and the amount of neurons that, um, take part in this visual representation, is it very easy for a neuron to potentially become, become compromised? And if, and how many neurons would it take to be compromised for our visual in, input to be disrupted? Would you be able to uh, comment on that? That's a fascinating question. Um, so... One of the very old, really interesting philosophical ideas in neuroscience that's kind of sometimes put out there in like a benchmarking argument is this idea of a grandmother cell. That like this, this is the neuron that represents your grandmother. And when this neuron is firing, like you're thinking about grandma. And then if that neuron dies, you lose all concept of your grandmother. Um, and then the other end of the spectrum is that our neurons are completely distributed. And so it's only in aggregate that we have any sort of sense of individual things. Um, that said, our neurons aren't totally distributed because we do know when people have strokes or brain trauma, for example, they do lose parts of their ability to process vision. So one of the very interesting sort of historical footnotes in um, especially visual processing is from the, it was a war between Japan and Russia. And it happened at just the right time in like gun development that people tended to survive gunshots to the head if they were sort of just in the right spot. And both Russian and Japanese doctors tended to notice that like different parts of your brain when they were pierced by bullets um, tended to lose vision in different parts of the visual field. And that's how we got this idea of I'm sure if you've taken an introductory class in visual perception, you've seen this like map of the visual world in front of a person and then a map of the visual world on the back of their head because neurons that are near each other in their brain tend to represent things that are near each other in the world. Um, and that first mapping happened because people got gunshot wounds to the backs of their heads and it took out all of the neurons that represent that part of space. Right. Wow. So, so this is actually one of the things that I found super interesting. It's this idea that, that some neurons process um, a, a certain input and they encode it kind of along different dimensions. It's this multidimensionality idea um, as opposed to the grammar neuron or the um, Jennifer Aniston neuron, um, as I've heard it. Um, so can you explain what, what this multidimensional model means? Yeah. So what it means is that neurons don't just like each represent their own special thing it is true that like when we measure them and we show them something 
we can tend to like see their selectivity and that they respond more to a vertical line than a horizontal line. But we don't, for example, like say when we're looking at a door handle and deciding whether we're going to reach for it with our hand vertical because it's a vertical handle or a horizontal because it's a horizontal handle, we don't like sit there and listen just to our vertical cells. We have cells that are selective for all orientations. And what tells us about the orientation of the world is how much and how little all of these cells are responding. And we believe that's true for more complex select selectivity as well. So like for faces, there's like different axes upon, like you might have a face where like cells that are selective to like where the nose is positioned along the central axis of the face or how big the eyes are. Um, and you use these sort of fundamental principles of how visual information is arranged in the world to create these sort of important axes on which you need to represent right. visual so, so information in, this, in the brain. So in the same way that, that we think about kind of an object or a ball or whatever moving up and down on the plane and side to side on the plane and maybe towards and away, we can think of neurons categorizing inputs in a much more higher dimensional space depending on whatever abstract features in a similar way to that? Yeah. So when we do this from a practical sense, um, we tend to like give each neuron its own dimension and just say like, okay, well, this neuron's dimension one and this neuron's dimension two. And so if we look at the activity of these two neurons, we can plot it, okay, neuron one is firing at three and neuron two is firing at 15, we're at 0.315 and use geometry in that sense. Um, and that's what really what we mean when we talk about dimensions is we mean like Euclidean geometry or Cartesian geometry, the plane. Um, yeah. But then you can add a third neuron then all of a sudden it's this cube and then you can add a fourth neuron and it becomes very difficult to imagine. Um, but we can also think of them abstractly in terms of things like orientation tuning um, and that you just have cells that together are selective for this one thing and that will give you just a more abstract idea of a dimension. Yeah, great. But, but we're not, I imagine we're not just born with this magical kind of neurons do this automatically and that neurons kind of have to train and, and evolve to, to get this perfect representation of this, this very good representation. So do we know how this, you know, this tuning and refining works? That's a really, really interesting question. Um, I, we know some things. I don't know many of them personally. Um, it's an emerging area of research. The, the simple answer is some of it you get right away. It develops in utero and then others you get through visual experience. But for example, um, some of the very early experiments in this field involved raising animals in a visual world where there were only vertical lines. And then when you examined the brains of these animals later, they had only selectivity for vertical lines because they'd never experienced horizontal. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's a complicated mix, I think, in that our brains are prepared at birth for a certain kind of visual stimulation, but exactly how that develops depends on our visual experience. This might be a little bit of a, um, 
an odd question. Just regarding what you were saying about that experiment, um, did they notice, I'm not sure if there's any data on this, if they did take the animals that only looked at the horizontal lines or, and then put them in a vertical situation and they weren't used to it, um, would the brains then adapt and become visually used to it or by then would it have been too late and the brain is already too developed? That's a really good question that I don't know the answer to. Um, it, there is a critical period. Um, so this is a really big problem for people who have lazy eye. Um, so it's also called amblyopia. And it happens when one of your eyes either isn't perfectly in line with your other eye. So there might be something wrong with one of the muscles and you can't fixate using both of your eyes on one point. Or sometimes one of the eyes has like, it's just poorly focused. So you get very blurry input from that eye. And it means that your brain never learns stereo vision properly. And so because your brain never learns stereo vision properly, even if you get the surgery to correct the, um, the muscle problem in your eye or you get a visual correction in the eye that doesn't have the right um, focus distance, it is very difficult for these people to re reclaim their two-dimensional vision or three-dimensional vision, the illusion of three-dimensional vision that we get through stereopsis, which is because our two eyes get slightly different visions of the world, kind of like magic eye stereograms, um, or I guess 3D movies is the modern example. Um, and there's a huge amount of research right now looking on therapy for like things that will help enhance our plasticity as adults to help improve outcomes for people with lazy eye and amblyopia. Um, just to confirm, that critical period that you mentioned, that's sort of the brain development period all the way up until the end of adolescence? Um, or is it, it, or is it different further for or different shorter? things? So I can't be too specific. For amblyopia, it's childhood. Um, and this okay. is one of the reasons, but like I think why it sometimes goes undiagnosed, especially if it's... Um, a focus problem is that you don't often notice the problem in kids with who are very young. Like kids tend to get prescriptions for glasses when they go to school, um, and they realize they can't see the board. Or I guess do people use boards anymore in childhood classrooms? The PowerPoint presentation. Um, yeah. <laughs> Something along those lines. <laughs> yeah. So it is an early childhood thing. Like I, you can't correct um, amblyopia in adolescence as easily either. Um, Okay. But yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, I can't be more specific than that without serious risk of being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right, fair enough. So it's time's really blown by, but I, I wanted to get um, to ask you one specific question about some of your recent work. And um, one of your recent articles has, has focused on contrast and brightness in visual systems. And that, that to me was really interesting because when I take my phone out and I take a picture of the outside, I'm often disappointed because the bright things on the image you know, either come out very bright and then the other stuff is too dark um, or the opposite way around. But when I see it, I, you know, I can, I can adjust for that. And I, you know, we seem to have a very good kind of dynamic range in that sense. Um, and you looked at how these changes in, in contrast and brightness affect orientation. So, so what did you find um, in there? What, what was interesting about looking at that problem? So the reason that the problem is interesting is not just that this experience that we have of like moving in and out of spaces that are vastly different luminances. Our eyes are unbelievably better than any technology that we have in cameras. And our brains are so much better than any of 
the sort of image correction technology that we have in cameras. Um, so it's an eye-brain cooperation that makes a sunset so spectacular. Um, but in that paper itself, what we were interested in was that, so when we talk about how neurons work together to tell us, like, for example, orientation is a very straightforward thing to measure, we think that they kind of have to work together in a consistent way. So the brain can't completely remodel when things change. We know the brain remodels over time, but between being out on your patio in the sun and going inside to a dark living room, you can't completely remodel your brain. <laughs> like right. You have to have a consistent representation for orientation. But your experience has changed so much. Like the pattern of light coming in changes hugely. And then the responses of the neurons change pretty substantially as well. And so what we were looking at was this interaction between having something that's important, like our ability to judge the orientation of an edge, and then something that's, you could call it a bit of a nuisance, like something else that's changing that doesn't matter. And what we examined in that paper was how different um, nuisance variables or things that happen in the world, like changes in brightness and contrast, affect how neurons might encode something important like orientation. Right. So it's about that dimension and I guess things changing in other dimensions, not the dimension mm -hmm. that we're interested in. Um, yeah. So, so what was the, the main takeaway from that? Um, so what we found was that the brain isn't as good as we thought it was. There is some variability in how um, when the responses of the brain change, in particular when the responses of the brain get smaller, so like in low contrast situations, right. it's it just becomes harder to see. Um, mm -hmm. And so there were effects like that, but we did also find that there was a remarkably stable representation of orientation. So even with these big fluctuations in overall rate caused by changes in light and changes in contrast, um, the way that neurons talked to each other about orientation was consistent. So it sort of sat on top of these other changes. Right, right. So so we could go kind of on all day and, and you've written on a lot, a lot of other work. So you've, you've written about variability and invariance across neurons in similar dimensions, different dimensions, and in general, just this, this visual neural code. Um, but unfortunately, we're almost out of time. So um, if, if you want to learn more about, about this research, you, you can go to Elizabeth, elizabethzabitz.com and we'll, we'll put a link on uh, on the bottom of, of the podcast, so you can learn more uh, about uh, about this, this this stuff. And and for students that want to get involved with this, what do you recommend? How do you recommend they go about, um, you know, learning more? Should they take a class? Should they read on their own? What, what's the best approach here? Um, I think there's there's so much out there to read on your own. Um, there's a lot of really good websites about like the neuroscience, there's a lot of really great science communicators on Twitter and on Instagram who talk about neuroscience. Um, there are great classes at Monash about neuroscience um, in psychology and in physiology. And um, I think 
Oh, there's also really good YouTube videos out there as well. I've been doing more learning on YouTube. It's great. I can really recommend three blue, one brown for algebra. Um, yeah, and I yeah, have to ask say questions. I... Never be scared to email somebody. If you see somebody on the website and think their work looks cool, email them. Like People don't tell me what I do is cool often enough. <laughs> so there's a, there's a wealth of experience, a wealth of information available to us in this internet age, which is spectacular. Um, and speaking of Twitter, um, Elizabeth also has a Twitter account. So if you want to go and give her a follow, that's also a great point of contact if you wanted to have a chat with her about anything. Um, but it does look like we are running out of time. Uh, Marcel, do you have any final questions? No, I'm, I'm very, very thankful that you, you came on the show. And thank you very much for talking about your research and, and these big challenges, these big questions. Um, thank you a lot. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. All right, thank you. And we're just going to go to a short break. We'll play some music, and then Marcel and I will be back with you after. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to No Country for Academics. Uh, now, in the first half of the show, we had Elizabeth Zavitz join us, who is a research fellow at Monash uh, in neuroscience and especially computational neuroscience. And we had a great chat about um, visual images and interpreting visual images in the brain and some of the research she, she does. Um, what did you think of the conversation, Marcel? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it was fascinating. She, she told us, um, you know, she was able to give very good examples as to why this is such a fascinating problem, such a difficult problem, because we go from this, you know, completely, um, this barrage of, of information of light coming into our visual processing system, and we come up with the structured representation of what we understand. Um, and, and the way she described the problem was fascinating. So if you do want to give it a listen, um, go on uh, No Country for Academics on your favorite podcast um, app, either iTunes or, or Spotify or wherever it is you use, and give it a listen. I was particularly excited about um, this method that, that neurons seem to have, or this understanding that we have of neurons kind of encoding information in all these different dimensions. The same way that we encode motion in a three-dimensional plane, um, we can think of each neuron kind of encoding in its own dimension and then see um, you know, this, the, the way they process in a, in a, in a high dimensional space. So, so that was really exciting. What, what did you think? It was especially interesting um, thinking about the representation of understanding information um, using like the neurons and having like Cartesian coordinates for them. So they all, they are visualizing a point in like a plane, which I, I found incredibly interesting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, also the kind of oh yeah, ahead, the hierarchical the hierarchical structure behind it, right? So she told us about, you know, specific neurons um, that encode very simple things, like lines um, and edges, um, and then how those neurons connect um, and, and build layers of hierarchical structure that end up um, explaining the, the more complex patterns and, and more complex patterns. Um, and another super interesting thing as well was the, the idea of very selective neurons. For example, she talked about a grandmother neuron that encodes who your grandmother is. And if that neuron dies, then you lose your perception of, of a grandmother versus um, you know, groups of neurons doing that encoding, not, not a single neuron. And she gave us a beautiful example of, of what happened um, in, in uh, the Japanese-Russian war um, when people were getting um, bullets to the head and, and didn't die, but parts of their perception were affected. Um, and, and they were able to discover this, this kind of relationship. So, um, so really interesting stuff that, that we saw. Yeah, um, just commenting on that, um, and especially when we were talking about the um, neurons being compromised um, and, all, and the vision, sort of getting some visual impairments and whatnot, um, there was that example she gave going from 
like outside on your patio to inside to your duck living room and your brain can't completely recompartmentalize. It has to sort of work with what it's given. Um, I don't know if you know this about me, Marcel, but I actually have, I'm not sure specifically of the name of it, but it's a little bit of a condition where anytime I go from a really, really dark space to a really, really bright space or um, just get a bright light in my eyes, I sneeze almost always. Right. Really? So I, I think I might have something similar. I mean, I, I, not, I don't know to what extent, but definitely I think it's a common thing when you look up to the sun um, and, and, you know, you sneeze from that. Do you have something more? Is it something more heavy or, or is it just that? Yeah, so a lot of people, and people especially use, like, looking at the sun, if they have a sneeze coming, like, looking at the sun helps the sneeze come out, which oh, I've yeah. heard a lot of people say that. But no, yeah. mine's actually, um, it can, like, the sun doesn't have to be involved at all. Like, if I'm, if I'm in my room... Um, in bed and I've got my curtains completely drawn so I'm in a completely dark room and I roll over and just check my phone or something or turn on a light I'll sneeze almost almost always oh okay so I'll, I'll give that a go today because I don't think that that happens to me but maybe I'll, I'll put my phone on high brightness and see if I can replicate it that's pretty strange it can well, be it can be pretty useful because um what I do if I'm ever sitting at my desk and because you know the uncomfortable nature of when you feel a sneeze coming and it's right. that tickling in the nose that slight sort of yeah um, little sinus irritation, but you just can't quite get it out. You can feel it's like just so close, but it just won't come out. Yeah. Um, yeah all so I have to do is pick up my phone, turn on the flashlight, turn it around, <laughs> flash it in my eyes, I and I will sneeze, it. and it just comes right wow. out. Wow. I'll, I'll try that next time. I don't know if it's going to work for me, but yeah, I mean, I definitely have something against sneezing in public. It's just something I'm quite embarrassed by. I don't know why. It's it, every, Everybody does it, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very comfortable with my sneezing, but that may just be because <laughs> I sneeze so much. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, now, we did want to move on just to our lovely weekly segment of uh, dumb leadership quotes or silly leadership quotes. And um, this one I've actually gone for a bit of a, a bit of a simple one, Marcel. Um, so I'll tell you what it is and see if you can guess right. who said it. Um, so it's a simple rule. Pants first, shoe second. That always usually works for me. I mean, they're right. <laughs> <laughs> this one's not necessarily a dumb leadership quote. It's just an interesting quote to come out of a leadership position. Exactly. I mean, look, sometimes you have to give straightforward advice to folks. Exactly. Um, now, do you have any idea who this might be? I have no idea. I, I want to say someone like Barack Obama. I think that that would be his kind of... This was actually said none other by none other than the current Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Oh, um, no way who said, just simply that, it's a simple rule, pants first, shoes second, that usually always works for me. There you go, a straightforward, straight-shooting man right there. I mean, it's interesting because <laughs> I, I just realized um, unintentionally, this kind of links to what we were discussing in the past weeks of our episodes of the grassroots approach, where you just got to sort of <laughs> take, the, take the simple stuff first and then the complicated right. stuff will follow along. Yeah, I mean, some, some people struggle with shoes on, that's for sure. I mean, have you ever done shoes first, pants second? Yeah, so I actually, that, it actually made me think of, you know, when I used to, to play soccer and we had those shorts that can just come off straight away. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I was like, all right, I need to get changed. And I was still wearing my shoes or whatever, and I needed to get changed into, into long pants because it was cold outside. Um, so the, the shorts come off through any shoes. Um, and then I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to put my long pants on. And I always failed, but I always tried. <laughs> so I guess this, this advice does come in handy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's the simple things that often help. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Um, now, we are starting to get towards the end of the show. Um, 
so in the interest of time, we might start looking to wrap up a little bit. Um, but first of all, Marcel, do we want to let everyone know who we have coming on next week? Yeah, so next week we have Ariel Zolosnikov Johnston. Um, he's also a neuroscientist, but in a bit of a different domain. So we looked at, um, we had Tim Bain, a philosopher of mine, and Ariel's kind of between um, our guest today and, and Tim Bain from the other week, in that he's moved into um, understanding consciousness through neuroscience and through empirical experiments. So we're really excited to have him on. Um, he's also a mid, you know, a mid early career researcher like Elizabeth today. We're very excited to talk to him um, next week. If you did want to um, look into who we had today, um, Dr. Elizabeth Zavitz, you can go to her website, um, elizabethzavitz.com, or look her up on Twitter or Google or the Monash website, um, uh, or also listen to the first part of this podcast because we had a very exciting time talking to her. Exactly. And that podcast, uh, just to reiterate, is available at any of your podcast streaming services under the name No Country for Academics. Um, but I thought also, Marcel, we might mention that um, this is actually our penultimate episode for the semester. So next week will be our um, final for, for the finale for what may, may be envisioned as season one of No Country for Academics. Indeed. Indeed. Well, we'll keep you updated on that. Exactly. Yeah. So um, next week we have Ariel coming on and it should be a really great episode. So please do ensure that you tune in. And then after that, we will be taking a break um, for the mid-year break due to university. And then we plan to return um, second semester with another great range of guests. And we've already started looking at some amazing people to have on. So keep an eye out for that. Um, there will be some amazing guests that you can come and listen to. Um, but other than that, Marcel, did you have any final comments you wanted to say? That'll be all. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week, uh, Friday. At